Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 4. His mercy is more. And speaking of more, there's going to be more singing tonight. How's that for a segue? Our choir and orchestra is going to be leading us tonight. And we're devoting the entire service to that. So we get to hear them. One of the remarkable choir ensembles and orchestras that, that I've ever uh, been exposed to. And, and I know you would say the same. Thank you, Adam, for leading them and for leading us and preparing us for worship in the Word. So commit to be out tonight. It's going to be a blessing for us all. It's going to be what Easter hymns in, of worship. Easter hymns of worship. So it's going to be a great night. Be praying for that as well. I know personal testimony. God can save people through songs. I was saved through a song. We're going to be looking at John 4 today, looking uh, from verses 1 to 14 to get at the heart of what he's saying. If you would look with me in verse 13, Jesus said to the woman at the well, the, the Samaritan woman, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, most of us here this morning have experienced this water that wells up to eternal life. And yet we need to be refreshed by that water today. And we know that it comes through the Son of God, by the Spirit of God, and by the means of the preaching of the Word of God. We pray that you would do that for us today for your glory. And Lord, we thank you that as we celebrate Holy Week, as the Lord Jesus Christ made his way in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we thank you that the irony of triumph through a cross and a resurrection from the grave is our inheritance. We pray that we could understand that inheritance even more today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When the World Trade Centers fell on September the 11th, 2001, over 3,000 people died in that terrible tragedy in those towers. But there were about 20 who survived underneath all uh, the, the rumble of that, of that place. It was, a, it was a terrible day, but 20 survived. Of those 20, numbers 18 and 19, that is found in that order were a man named Will Jimeno and John McLaughlin. They were Port Authority policemen. And when they heard that the towers had been struck, they, they fled to that South Tower to save those that they could save. And then when that tower fell, a hundred floors of that tower fell, uh, they raced to an elevator shaft and, and, and kind of tried to survive the fall. And they were buried dozens of feet 
below the rubble. Now, they survived, but they were trapped without water. They were in severe pain. They were breathing in smoke and, and dust and all kinds of other things. And, and they had little hope. They were in a hopeless situation. Yet, as they lay there, something was stirring inside the heart of an accountant in Connecticut, a man named Dave Carnes. He was watching this play out on television, and he knew he had to do something. And so he went to his, his boss and said he was taking the rest of the day off. And then he went and got a high-end type haircut, a military haircut, because he had spent 23 years in the Marines. And then he went and put on his Marine uniform, his Marine fatigues, because he thought it would get him into the, to the ground zero area. And then he drove 120 miles per hour to Manhattan. And there, at ground zero, he, he found another Marine. And they began to search together. And after several hours of searching, they heard voices, almost like screams, and the tapping of pipes. Well, they had found Will and John. They were trapped in the midst of that rubble, and yet Carnes and his colleague found them. Now, my good friend, Pastor Ed Moore, he's a pastor in Queens at a wonderful church there. One of his deacons was Will and John's boss with the Port Authority. And he set up a meeting with Will and John and Pastor Ed. John was still in the hospital, and he visited John, and then he went to visit Will at his home. And when he got there, he noticed the, the huge hole in, in Will's leg that had occurred from the injuries. And he began to hear Will tell his story about being trapped. The, the heat was intense. The pain was almost bear, unbearable. They were, they were breathing in fumes and dust and, and smoke and everything else. And they were scared. He said, but Pastor Ed, you know what the toughest thing was? He said, it was the thirst. It was the thirst. He said, I saw a pipe that was dripping some kind of fluid. I didn't know what that fluid was. It could have been fuel. It could have been anything. But my greatest aspiration at that moment was to wet my tongue with what Ever was coming out of those pipes. But because Dave Carnes was willing to go where others were not willing to go, Will was saved from his thirst. Indeed, his life was saved. What an apt picture of what our Lord Jesus Christ does for all of us who are thirsty who are subject to death. Indeed, who are dead in our trespasses and sins. We see this at the very beginning of this passage. Our spiritual thirst is what compels the Savior. Our spiritual thirst is what compels the Savior. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 4. 
Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, and by the way, I think that's an important statement, because Jesus is Savior and yet he doesn't baptize. Baptism is very important. But baptism is not what saves us. Baptism is our first act of obedience after we are saved, right? If baptism was necessary for salvation, then Jesus would have baptized. But only his disciples baptized. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass, I love that, through Samaria. And so it appears that Jesus left because the Pharisees were likely trying to induce or incite some kind of competition between Jesus and the Pharisees. And unlike many that we see on social media today, Jesus didn't go out and try to fight every battle. He wasn't argumentative. He just left, okay? But, but I love this, and I, and I love, uh, Monty's going to love this, the King James Version. He must needs go through Samaria. Don't you, don't you love that? He must needs go through Samaria. Now, Samaria was the shortcut. It was the direct route to where he was going. But there is a sense in which there is divine necessity with Jesus here. This is a providential encounter that Jesus is about to have in Samaria. Now, just a little background on Samaria... Israel was split into two kingdoms, divided into two kingdoms, in 931 B.C. And the reason that happened was not for strategy purposes. It's because of apostasy. Uh, Solomon had, had committed idolatrous sins, and then his son Rehoboam had committed idolatrous sins. And as the king goes, so goes the people. And so the, the, the kingdom was split in two. And the ten northern tribes, collectively known as Israel, went one way. And the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, collectively known as Judah, went the other way. Well, the northern tribes were apostate from the beginning. They never had a king from the tribe of David. They were apostate from the beginning, and they established their capital in Samaria, modern day the West Bank. But in 722 B.C., after, from the very beginning, committing apostasy, the Assyrians came in and depopulated the northern kingdom. And they, they exported many of the Israelites and, and took them out of that place, took them out of Israel, took them out of the land. But there were a few that remained. And then when pagan Gentiles began to move into the area, they began to cohabitate. Of course, the pagan Gentiles brought their false religion to the Israelites, and the Israelites were not worshiping Yahweh as prescribed in his law. And, and so it was just a, a terrible um, disaster waiting to happen. It, it, basically, what you have with the Samaritans is syncretism from the very beginning, just a bunch of views, different views coming together in a terrible recipe of false religion. Um, so, for instance, they, they only held to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. They discounted the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, 
They wanted nothing to do with anything in Jerusalem. And they wanted nothing to do with any kind of notion that the Messiah was coming from the Davidic king, from the tribe of David. As a result, there was a great split between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, it came to the point where the Jews began to hate the Samaritans. There was a, a, a racism that developed, an ethnic vainglory um, that should have manifested itself rather in kind of a spiritual burden for these people. It actually ended up being racism that developed between the Jews and the Samaritans. So extreme was the divide that if you were a committed Jew, you would not find yourself in Samaria. And so, um, oftentimes, Samaria would have been the shortcut to get from one place to another, but a committed Jew wouldn't go through Samaria. They would take the roundabout. They would go twice the distance just so that they did not have to go through Samaria. Now, that's a bad deal when God has called you to be a light to the nations. But here, the true and faithful light, and we've already learned that he is the light of light. He has come and he has gone where no other Jews would go. He has gone to Samaria. Now look with me in verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his, his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Now, there's no record in the Old Testament of Jacob digging a well. That doesn't mean that it's not true. It is true. Tradition had taught them, though, that Jacob had dug a well. You don't see it in the Old Testament, but still, it was a fact. It happened. So Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour would have been 12 o'clock noon. It is the hottest part of the day in this area of the world. And so, nearly 2,000 years earlier, tradition had taught them that Jacob had dug a well right there. Today, you can go there. It's about 1,000 feet, 10 stories. I had a friend who drank from that well. And it didn't go well from him afterwards. I'll just tell you that. But that well was still there 2,000 years later to provide water for Jesus. Now, it's interesting because John has spent the first several chapters of his book emphasizing the deity of Jesus. He is God, a very God. He is the Word who became flesh. The Word who was with God the Word who was God, the Word who is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is eternally generated of the Father, eternally begotten of the Father, the eternal Son. And here, he needs water. What gives? Well, as much as he is God, he is man. He is a human. He is fully God, and he is fully man, which means that Jesus hungered. Jesus thirsted. Jesus would get tired. He would get sleepy. We know in one account he falls asleep in a boat in the middle of a hurricane. 
And Jesus would feel pain. Jesus would be able to die. And as a result of that, he is able, get this, to sympathize with you. In all of your weaknesses, in all of your limitations, he is able to tailor-make his grace to fit your situation. Because he is able, as our high priest, to sympathize with you. But Jesus' humanity also shows us the divine ideal for humanity. Now, there are many people who believe that the way we're saved is by uh, following Jesus' example. Let me just tell you, Jesus' example slays us all. Uh, Jesus' example is like the law. It shows us how sinful we are. But once we are saved, Jesus' humanity serves as a kind of pattern for our lives. It's intended by the Holy Spirit to cultivate in every believer the mind of Christ as we behold the kind of human he was. It creates in us noble and holy dispositions. And here, in his fatigue, we see something glorious about the Savior. His fatigue is not a barrier for evangelism. It's the occasion. Now, I want you to think about this as well. Is there a place for, for relational evangelism where you develop a relationship with an unbeliever and you just do life with them? Absolutely. We can support that from Scripture. But here, there's no relational evangelism. He didn't know this woman. This is where he comes to a person who he does not even know, and he brings the gospel to, to her. Now, maybe we, who are the fruit of Jesus seeking to save that which is lost, need to ask ourselves the question whether we have wearied ourselves in the pursuit of sinners. It's a very important question. Many of us, and let me include me here so it doesn't sound like I'm browbeating you, many of us, including your pastor, way too often are not as faithful in our evangelism as we should be because we are too lazy and self-centered. And, and so the best way to motivate ourselves to actually care for the souls of others is to realize that the same Jesus who is pursuing this undeserving woman is the same Jesus who pursued you. Now notice in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, that's not a coincidence. Is we don't believe in that. This is the providential hand of God. And it really began with the Pharisees trying to stir something up. God can even use that kind of nonsense to bring about his purposes. And Jesus said to her, notice, give me a drink. Now, generally, the women of the villages in, in Samaria would draw water either early in the morning or at sunset. Why would they do that? Because it's less hot. It's not the heat of the day. 
And they would have come as a group rather than as individuals. Why? Because it would have been safer. Imagine being in a country where the true and living God is not feared. Well, we don't have to imagine too much, do we? Well, that was Samaria. It would have been a very dangerous place for, for women in isolation to be. So the fact that this woman came in the heat of the day at noon and she came by herself speaks to her social status in the culture. She had been ostracized. She had been marginalized. And we'll see more of why the next time we're in John 4. But Jesus didn't look at her social status. He didn't look at it at all. Jesus was and is no respecter of persons. There was no kind of gender bias in Jesus. There was no kind of racism in Jesus. He looked at this woman as an image bearer. And he said to her, give me a drink. And notice in verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, Jesus' request here uh, could have stirred criticism on two accounts. Uh, For one, this woman was a woman. And men did not speak to women in public places like that. First of all, though the Bible does not demean women, the Bible esteems women as being equal image bearers to God or to men in that culture women were demeaned it was sinful but it was the reality and so Jesus is speaking to this woman not only that she was a Samaritan and among the Jews there was great ethnic racism as we'll see in verse 9 but but Jesus's love and again this is an example to every believer here Jesus's love For people, for all image bearers superseded any fears of criticism, any fear of man. And as a result, just in the case of of his conversation with Nicodemus, we get to eavesdrop now on a conversation that has impacted the kingdom of God for 2,000 years. Look with me in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Double taboo there. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, it's hard to even conceive of a a starker contrast between a Samaritan woman and a Jewish man, never mind the fact this is Jesus himself. For one, the Jews simply would not share utensils with Samaritans. But also think about, and John is doing this as he writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's intentionally contrasting this woman with the last person Jesus had a conversation with. Remember, there were no chapter visions when this was written. He assumes that you and I are going to make the connection between Nicodemus and this woman at the well. 
Stark contrast. For one, Nicodemus was a Jew. This woman was a Samaritan. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, the elite class in Israel. This woman belonged to to no religious party. Nicodemus was a teacher of the Jews, the teacher of the Jews. He was a scholar. This woman was uneducated, had no formal training. This Nicodemus was a man. This woman was a woman. Nicodemus came at night to protect his reputation. This woman came at noon because she had lost her reputation. Nicodemus, and we know this, had a name. This woman has no name. We don't know her name. Heaven knows her name. But the church for 2,000 years has speculated on who this woman was. She had no name. Nicodemus was a moral elite. No one was more moral and outwardly righteous than Nicodemus. This woman was sexually immoral, as we'll see in the second part of the passage. And all of us here fit within those two poles in some way or some fashion. All of us fit within those two extremes. Nicodemus and this woman at the well. No one falls outside of those two poles. There's no one here. No one for 2,000 years has fallen outside those two poles. And here's the point. Both of them had the same need. Both of them had the same need. As different as they were, both of them had the same need. Nicodemus is the supreme example that no one can rise so high that he or she does not need a Savior. And this woman at the well is the supreme example that no one can sink so low as to be beyond the hope of the Savior. That's what John is communicating to us as he gives us these two extreme examples. And Jesus, the Savior, crossed all those man-made barriers out of love for her, out of love for this woman. You know, many people, and you've met them, I've met them, they won't come to church Because they believe, and this is horrifying to think about it, but you know it's true. They won't come to church because they assume that the believers are going to look down on them. And that's a horrifying reputation to have or uh, a stereotype to have. And they feel uncomfortable, similarly the way this woman at the well would have felt had she been at the temple in Jerusalem. That's why we have to go to them. We have to. We have to go to the women at the well, metaphorically speaking. We have to go the way of Christ. And and Jesus' care here, his concern for her, opens her up. Notice that. He opens her up because of his care for her. And she puts the ball on the tee for him with that question. 
Why would you speak to me? She says. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? But notice in verse 10. Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God. And who it is that is saying to you. Give me a drink. You would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. It's one of my favorite verses in John. Jesus sums up the gospel in terms of two things. Get this, that everyone here needs to know. Some of you, most of you already know it. We just need to be reminded. Some of you don't know this. But he sums up the gospel in two things we all need to know this morning. First of all, if you knew the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God. What's that telling us? Jesus is telling us that God is a gift giver. He is gracious. He is a God of grace. In other words, you don't need to measure up. In fact, you can't. It's impossible to measure up. Your responsibility is to receive the gift. To receive it by faith. In Isaiah 55, the prophet gives this invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts. In other words, this is only for the thirsty. It's an invitation only for those who thirst. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's the grace of God. If you knew the gift of God. But secondly, if you knew who it was who was speaking to you. That's what Jesus said to this woman. If you only knew who was speaking to you. So the second thing we need to know about the gospel, we have to know who Jesus is, the Son of God, and why he came. Ultimately, he came not just to perform miracles or to show acts of compassion that we did that. He came to die. He came to die, to pay our sin debt in full, to be raised from the grave, ushering in new creation for those who believe. But in these two statements is the gospel in a nutshell. And you're only qualified if you're thirsty. You're only qualified for the gift if you're a sinner, you're qualified for a living water. Now, this is not language that Jesus just created. Now, we know he's the agent of creation, so Jesus is creator. But he's not being creative here with this language. The language of living water takes us all the way back to the Old Testament. So, for instance, and I could give you several examples, but for lack of time, just one instance, in Jeremiah 2.13, Yahweh is called the fountain of living water. Now, from our position of having the entire gospel of John, we know that Jesus is speaking here of the impartation of, of his life in us from the Holy Spirit. So, for instance, in John 7, uh, verse 38, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
But this he said about the Spirit. So this living water is the Son of God, the life of the Son that comes by the gift of the Spirit. But she does not get this. Look with me in verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Today it's, again, 1,000 feet deep. It may have been deeper then. Where do you get that living water? Now, this is one of the things that Nicodemus had in common with this woman. Uh, Both of them only saw things from a natural perspective. Both were bound to the material world. Jesus had told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus thought he was speaking about obstetrics. And here, he offers her living water, and she's thinking in terms of being hydrated physically. And that brings us to the last part of this passage, the heart of the passage. We've seen that the the thirsty are the ones that compel the Savior. But notice here, our Savior compels the spiritually thirsty. This woman is being compelled by the kindness and the mercy of the Savior. Look with me in verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He was probably pointing at the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up. Welling up in a way that will offer and bring eternal life. Welling up to eternal life. Whether you know it or not, whether the world knows it or not, Psalm 42, verse 1, is the plight of all humanity. Here's what the psalmist says. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That is the human condition. Every soul pants for the living water of the Lord. And I say this because we lost God in the fall. We've been looking at Genesis 3 on Sunday night. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they were alienated from God. They lost God in the fall. And we were made for God. You can't change that. You were an image bearer. You were made for him. And so in Isaiah 5 verse 13, for instance, um, we who are exiled, and, and to be exiled is to be alienated from God. We who are exiled are parched with thirst. That's the language that's used. We are separated from the fountain of living water. We're spiritually dehydrated, and that is a deadly condition. A.W. Pink, whether he articulates it or not, the natural man, the world over, is crying, I thirst. Why this consuming desire to acquire wealth? Why this craving for the honors of the world? Why this mad rush after pleasure? Because there is something remaining in every natural man that is unsatisfied. Over all the cisterns of this world's providing is written, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. And many of you have seen that interview that Tom Brady had with 60 Minutes after several Super Bowls. And and he asked the interviewer, is that all? 
he thought that more and more trophies would quench the thirst. And it just made him thirstier. Of course, because we do have this, this thirst, because of our separation from God, the irony is that we seek to quench the thirst in our natural state, to curb the thirst with living water replacements. And those living water replacements only make the thirst worse. That is the irony for sinful man. And Jesus says to this woman, and he says to you, you know by your own daily experience that if you merely drink from Jacob's well, or the metaphorical Jacob's well, you're going to have to come back tomorrow. It can never quench or satisfy the thirst. Of course, he's using the physical to explain the spiritual. But if every person could be convinced of that, how much heartache and suffering could be eliminated in our lives? Jesus alone has the thirst-quenching satisfaction that we are all looking for, but in our natural state, in the wrong places. You see, all created things are mere wells. They aren't springs. Interestingly, um, wells of water don't spring up. So he's speaking here about a well. He's, he's, he's talking to her about a well, but he's changing the subject, if you will. Only waters in springs spring up. Waters in well, they just sit there. Notice again the language he uses. He says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring. Not just a well, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, the woman had come to a well, and Jesus is calling her to a spring. It's a very important point John's making. Think about this analogy. You can cover up a well with dirt. If you don't want the well there... You just cover it up with dirt and enough dirt, you will never have to worry about that water in that well again. Try to cover up a spring with dirt. All you'll get is a lot of mud because that spring cannot be quenched by mere dirt. Now think about that implication for you as a believer. Um, some Christians... Many Christians, if not all Christians, go through seasons where we try to suppress the spring that is within us. The life of Christ that comes by the Holy Spirit. And so we, we might try to suppress it with worldliness. We might suppress it with some kind of sin that we refuse to deal with. But you can't quench an underground spring all you'll get is mud in other words a well can be covered that spring cannot be so though this dirt cannot quench the spring it does thwart our ability to be refreshed by and enjoy the spring so that's a very important point for every Christian. You have the life of Christ in you. But this is also a word to every unbeliever here. Without the life of Christ in you, 
You are dependent on the wells of this world that can be quenched and will be quenched and cannot satisfy your thirst. Of course, for Jesus to offer this water, as he does here, it would require him to take on a mission much more taxing than even a trip through Samaria. It would require him to go the way of the cross. And on the cross, he experienced a greater thirst than he experiences here at high noon in Samaria. Jesus bore our thirst curse. Do you know we have a thirst curse? In the Old Testament, for instance, in Hosea 2, God threatened to make his unfaithful people like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Thirst is a metaphor in the, in the Old Testament of, of being under the curse of God, separated from the living waters. Lamentations 4, the tongue of the one who's under God's judgment sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. You see? And so to redeem us from the thirst curse, to redeem us from the curse of the law, Jesus had to become a curse for us. That's what he did. And John 19, 28 tells us when he was on the cross, one of his seven words that he spoke. Of all the things he could have said, here's what he said, I thirst. I thirst. Now, why would that be recorded? He's undergoing the thirst curse for us. Thirst representing our separation from the living water, the fountain of living water. And having satisfied the wrath of God on our sin... He says two verses later in John 19, 30, it is finished. And so on the cross, here's the irony. The living water became thirsty. The living water became thirsty, securing the salvation for all the spiritually thirsty who would trust in him, who would drink of him. Jesus died for the thirsty, but he arose refreshed. His thirst quenched. And now he can say, in his resurrected state, by the Spirit, by the Word, whoever believes in him shall never thirst. And that's why we gather. And that's why we need to be reminded of our living water. As we go through a world opposed, we have living water that satisfies our thirst even in a parched land. But it's also an offer to every person here who's never drank of that water. So as Adam comes forward, our musicians come forward, uh, we're going to have our pastors here at the end of the aisle. Maybe you would like to pray with us. Maybe you have questions about what it means to drink of this living water. We would love to, to answer those questions for you um, as we stand and as we, we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.